Welcome to Your Brain On by Salience Learning. I'm Karen Foster. And I'm Krista Gerhard. This is part two of our series with Dr. Clark Quinn, an author and recognized leader in learning technology strategy. We hope you enjoy. Krista knows, as as I think um, the, some of our team does, my true passion is to be a stand-up comic someday. <laughs> so I, I firmly advocate for humor as a use of giving the learner that that experience of the primary intent of the instruction in driving that home. Because for me to say something to someone is, as I always say, is worth one X. For two learners to say it to each other, right, via a, a social engagement, a discussion, um, turn and talks is worth three X. But for the learner to figure it out themselves is worth 10 X. And of course, it's obviously... 10 times harder to think and draft those types of, of scenarios that really bring home that experience. But uh, it's definitely something that we've seen work as well. And so it's exciting to hear that that's something you've seen as, as a best mm -hmm. practice. Well, humor. Yeah. Um, so one thing you said was, uh, you know, you channel is comic and humor. And I think we you have to use it judiciously. You don't want to do it at the critical practice elements, but before and after bookending, there's some really nice research on how humor can work. But I, what you say about helping people discover, there was a paper by uh, Kirshner, Sweller, and Clark, um, and all smart people, so Paul Kirshner, John Sweller, Richard Clark, that sort of said that whole constructivist stuff of exploratory doesn't work and you have to use direct instruction. And I was a little bit upset with it because their portrayal of constructionism, you know, that what you were talking about, you have to discover it yourself. They said that didn't work. And yet, wait, that doesn't make any sense. But when you look at their paper, they set up a straw man, pure exploration with no guidance, which, you know, Wallace Feuerstein back in 1985 was talking about guided discovery. And if you look at the direct instruction they actually talk about, it, they talk about giving people meaningful problems and guiding exploration around it. it. They're really not that different. And so I strongly support, but you're absolutely right. It's more challenging to make an environment where they have to explore and discover the relationships themselves and use that. I talk about uh, simulation scenarios and games. And a simulation is just a model of the world. It can be in any legal state and you can take it to any other legal state. And a self-motivated and effective self-learner can get what they need out of it. They'll go in, they'll play with it, they'll understand the relations, walk away. But that's not the way to bet, right? <laughs> we haven't done a good job in K-12 and higher ed of, of creating self-directed learners. So I, what we do as designers is we put that simulation in an initial state and ask the learner to take it to a goal state. And we've chosen those so that they can't get there until they understand the relationships we want them to understand about this environment. And then I say, you can tune that into a game. If you remove the boring parts and ramp exaggerate the challenge and whatever it is, and you should, that actually accelerates the learning experience. But to your point, um, at least having to determine that initial state and goal state, and you don't have to do that with a full simulation engine. You can do that with branching scenarios or even better written multiple choice questions. But that's the focus we're looking for. The, the transition that we've seen based upon the, the pandemic and everybody transitioning to virtual fully. And as we start to slowly come out of it, there's gonna be a combination of, of hopefully what we would imagine a bit of a hybrid approach to learning and development. Th rethinking the way 
the life sciences has traditionally wanted to do the grand scale live meetings all the time and trying to find meaningful ways to incorporate digital learning experiences into their everyday flow, whether it's for national meetings, for small updates, et cetera. But a lot of times we, we have these conversations, we talk to the concept of blended learning. And I think it'd be helpful if you could also provide your perspective on how you're defining blended learning as we transition into this, this hybrid environment of learning experiences in life sciences. Well, I like the broad definition of blended learning that says we're mixing, you can mix a wide variety of things. It's not just online or face-to-face. -face. It can be stretch assignments. It can be go read this, go interview this person. There's a wide variety of types of activities that we should be blending to create the optimal learning outcomes. So I'm strongly supportive of that. To, to get more specific to your question about we've been doing thing, you know, we always felt we had to do it face-to-face. -face. We were forced to do it remotely. We worried that, oh, we can't trust people and a lot of stuff, which we found out wasn't true. So now we know we can use effectively use remote and, and digital mechanisms. And then the question becomes, when should we? And cognitively and emotionally, we know that that face-to-face -face time is actually quite expensive. It takes a lot to get people there. They're off task, they're away from their office. You have to house them and feed them and transport them. So when we do that, we should use that for the very important things that that time can be used for. And you mentioned how about uh, the dialogue of people talking to one another and I, negotiating a shared understanding is really critical and the ability to perform and get feedback right there from an expert who can do the right things. These are two really valuable things that we can do with face-to-face -face time. Presenting a bunch of information isn't necessarily valuable to do live. You can do it asynchronously online, consume it and stuff and have a channel where you can ask any questions to disambiguate anything or we can do presentations virtually. So knowledge presentation is just not a good thing to do open. And so, but given, you know, if you look at Van Marienboer's four component and structural design, he talks about the knowledge you need and the complex problems you apply it to. Well, the knowledge you need, you do need that knowledge, but let's not use FaceTime to present it. Let's use FaceTime to operate, to apply it and get feedback and to negotiate shared understanding. That's what we can be doing. So, um, you know, and again, back to the richer picture, and we can be sending people out and giving them stretch assignments and giving them feedback and coaching and extending it so we have a whole rich picture of development instead of the event-based model. And that is one of the most important things I think we can learn from this is let's break out from the event model because, and I know you folks know this if you've been studying learning science at all, you got to space learning out over time and an event doesn't do that very well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that I really liked your your point about maximizing the efficiency of the live instruction and thinking about or synchronous, one should say, if it's virtual as well, what's the best use of that time from for the learner, from the for the the instruction and, and changing behavior. Uh, I want to circle back to something because you, you talked a lot about self-directed learning and how K-12 uh, through higher ed has not done a good job of, uh, you know, building self-directed learning. Well, well, those those individuals end up in the workforce, right? And so in the workforce, we we also find that there's there's not a lot of great uh, self-directed learning. Um, give us a bit of your 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 perspective on how to drive 
self-direction in learning in adults. Right. And I should be um, uh, clear in my terminology. And it was uh, Miriam Nealon and Paul Kirshner in their book, Evidence Informed Learning Design, to actually make a distinction that I, I, I slipped into my my bad. Self-directed learning means I'm taking responsibility for my own learning. I'm choosing my goals. And yes, people now have to do that more and more, and that's okay. But at the micro level, it's then when I set myself a learning goal, how well do I, they call it self-regulated learning. How well do I control my learning experience to ensure that I achieve the outcome I've set myself as my direction? So it's that regulation is important. And there's three major components, the planning of how I'm going to learn, the monitoring of my learning as I go along, and then evaluating the impact. Am I done? Did I achieve my goal? And in each of those, you can unpack specific uh, tactics and uh, mechanisms that you can put in place. And back to the point, we could develop that. We could be explicit about it. You look at Garvin, Edmondson, and Gino, and they talk about what makes a good uh, learning culture, and it includes the environment, but it also includes the concrete practices. And we could be clear what these are, we could develop them, and we don't. And so, um, you know, whether it's, if I'm planning to learn this, what's the right way to learn this topic versus that topic? And then what have I done? Have I set myself goals to reactivate it and give myself increasing challenges? Have Did I do that? Did I get feedback? Did I learn from it? And then at the end, you know, how did I do? What my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Where am I at now? Can I ask, have you, because I'm thinking about self-directed learning, self-regulated learning in industries that are heavily regulated. Is, do you have any guidance um, in trying to help organizations become a bit more comfortable when it's almost like the the leadership loses control of the prescriptive nature that learning can become within industry and empowering the learner a bit more. Have you seen it be more su successful in say skill or capability-based learning versus knowledge, which you may consider to be a bit more self-directed or self-regulated at times? What Right. Well, I think, you know, the knowledge should lead to change. I like uh, my colleague Harold Jarkey's personal knowledge mastery model, and he talks about seek, sense, share. So you seek out information, and that's the knowledge. But the sensing part is really important, where you um, apply, you either re-represent it or you apply it and evaluate it. And then when you've made sense of it, then you share it out back out. And that there's a loop there of feedback that can improve you as well by once you're sharing. And uh, Jane Bozarth's book, Show Your Work, also talks about how increasingly important it is to share. Now, I understand in organizations there's certain places they can't share, but we know how to control that. We can make sure that, you know, while I'm talking to my other colleagues in my pharmaceutical compound group, I can't share that outside the organization, but I can share it within here and we can all benefit from learning from one another. So that's, that's not a, a, a difficult problem um, technically. Now, people may have trouble getting their minds around it and worry about it, but the, the mechanisms are there. So knowing and setting policies about what you can share with whom and when. You know, when you go to a conference on pharmaceuticals, who can you talk to and what can you tell them and what can't you tell them? You set policies, but you have to recognize if you just cut off internet access in, uh, inability to communicate with anybody outside the org, you're cutting off half your brain <laughs> because you're no longer just what's in your head. You're also what's in your, in your network. 
and you just have to be very clear about what you can say and what you can't say. And you know, we have ways to develop that and test that and make sure that you know that. And not only know that, but perform that. <laughs> and then uh, we get there. So um, I think increasingly orgs are going to benefit from creating a culture and where everybody's learning together and creating opportunities for that creative friction that generates new ideas, particularly pharmaceutical and life sciences, incredibly competitive, incredibly dynamic. But you're going to get more when you find ways to uh, ensure that you have not only the, you know, I talk about fast and slow innovation. And fast innovation is when you assign a team and say, do this, research this, design this, create this. That's all, by the way, learning, because you don't know the answer when you start. So that's informal learning, and I think L&D should have a role in facilitating that too. But then there's the slow innovation, which is the ongoing percolation of ideas, what Stephen Johnson talked about in his book, uh, Where Good Ideas Come From, and Keith Sawyer in his book, Group Genius, talked about how do we get that continual gestation of new ideas? And it doesn't come from an organization where anything you say can and will be held against you. If you have a Miranda organization, <laughs> you're not going to get that. But if you make it possible for people to have conversations and test out ideas and have time for reflection, you have the possibility of, of achieving that. And that, in the long term, is a greater benefit than the risk of, of losing information. That's my take. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Brain On. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Krista Gerhard. And I'm Karen Foster. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>